is Stephanie. I'm one of the pastors here. If I haven't met you yet, I'd love a chance to meet you. So uh, last week, someone just came up and said, you said you wanted to meet me, and I meant it. So we met. So it's good. It's awesome. Uh, if you haven't been with us lately, we've been, we just started a conversation last week that we're calling You Are Here. You Are Here. And the idea behind it is that wherever you are, there you are. Okay? Yeah, that's it. All right, so then we're going to move on. <laughs> um, just this idea that wherever you find yourself in your life, you can only be present in one place. And the idea that the God of the universe meets you where you're at, that God is present in our everyday lives, in our everyday spaces, in uh, Pastor Christian Ann's phrase, their everyday chaos, that God is present in those spaces. And so put that slide up there for me, Ryan, that this idea of there's all these parts of our life that we are present in and God is present there too. So we're talking about this, our vocation, our community and family, the world that God loves, your heart and your mind. And we ask these questions, what is God doing and how do I respond? What is God doing and how am I invited to respond? What might God be saying to me and what am I gonna do about that? What do I see God doing and how might I respond to what I see God doing right around me? But it turns out, if we don't look for that and have an awareness of what God's doing around us, we can't respond and we don't often even notice sometimes that God's present and doing something in our life. So that's what we've been talking about. So I'm gonna pray and then we're gonna continue on in that conversation together. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, I thank you for the promise of this presence that we're talking about. That you are here with us now, that you inhabit our praises, but that God, you are God who is before us, behind us, watching over us and with us as we leave this place, as we go to the many places and spaces that we'll find ourselves this week. God, you are a God who remains present here in this school, that these kids, no matter how lonely they might feel when they come to school here at Sheridan, that you're a God who is with them. We pray that their awareness would grow, that they're not alone, and that there's people that are with them and for them, and God, that you are for them. And we are so privileged to be some of those people that are for the kids here in Northeast Minneapolis, and we thank you for that opportunity here at Sheridan. We ask that you continue to bless our relationship that we have with them, and we thank you, God, for the hospitality offered to us by the Minneapolis Public Schools and by Sheridan. We're so thankful. And we pray, God, that you would speak to us this morning, that you would, right now, turn up our awareness of what you might be saying to us in this present moment, um, that we would be people who are different when we walk out than when we came in today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Okay, so I'm gonna start out with uh, some, a new word that I learned this week. So because I'm someone who gets a microphone, I can share that with everybody right now. So you get to learn it too if you didn't know. And the term is vague booking. Who knew what vague booking is? Okay, I see some slow hands. All right, so apparently vague booking is a status on, social, on a social media platform that's intentionally vague. Now, I, I know about this. I just didn't know there was a term for this, okay? And so, uh, for instance, it's just where someone is, is saying something that, that seems to elicit a response, but we don't know exactly what they're talking about. And I wish that I could say that I was not guilty of this at any time, but I cannot say that I am not guilty of this. But I, I think that the question that some of us, not all of us, but some of us actually have to ask is not, do we, are we guilty of vague booking, but what kind of vague booker are we, okay? So I've got a few different kinds. The first kind is the short and sweet, okay? So this is an example. I can't even, feeling exhausted, right? I can't even, this is short and sweet. Here's another short and sweet. Ugh, right? And then someone's like, what's wrong? Life. This is vague, <laughs> it's kind of vague, okay? And then here's another one. Uh, this is emoji only, frowny face, right? Some of you are like, ooh, I'm the emoji only person. That's okay, you're welcome here, no shame. 
And then there's the messages directed to somebody else, but you don't tag them in it. All right, so here's a couple examples. The first one is, get your facts straight before you come to me thinking you know it all. Two people like this, and then the person says, this is about you, Kayla, so I don't know why you liked it. (laughs) Kayla was not tagged in the post. The post went to everyone on Facebook. Okay, and then the second one under here is, best friends has 11 letters, and so does backstabber. I know, right, 16 people like that. Okay, so vague booking, final vague booking, and I think it's just the using only punctuation, okay? So this is an example where it's just question mark? I have seen the the punctuation only ones, it's just crazy. So what kind of vague booker might somebody be? And I, I, I feel like I've been guilty of this at times in my life, not only on Facebook, but sometimes in my life in other ways. And in the church world, I think of vague booking as like the unspoken prayer request. Like, we've got a few unspokens. Well, we've got a long list of unspokens. And there's reasons why people don't want to share some of this stuff. I think it makes sense that there's a part of us that wants to be known and wants to be understood and wants to be seen, but it's so vulnerable and risky to, to say more than that. I get that. And maybe not even helpful to put it all on Facebook. I get that. But there's this need we have to want to be understood and to want to be seen in the midst of maybe the highs and the lows and some different things in between. I get that, but it's risky and it's vulnerable. And so in this conversation, you are here talking about wherever you are, God is present in our everyday life. I wonder when it comes to our thought life, the things that we think about on a daily basis, on a weekly basis, are we people who try to vague book God? All right, follow me on this. I think this is a thing that happens. I know I'm guilty of it. This idea that as I reflect on my own life and I think about some of your stories, I think we sometimes have this tendency to think that we can kind of share the vague details of things that we're thinking about or concerned about with God and and that there's this idea that we can do that and then uh, the things that are really going on, we can hold back a little bit in our minds and our hearts. We can keep this part of the things that we're really mulling at kind of personal and separated from the God who created us but God can have the vague kind of overarching concepts that we feel comfortable letting God into. But here's the deal. Jesus meets us in our thought life. And I think the story today is gonna exemplify this. God's spirit knows the details of our minds and our hearts. There is no keeping it vague with God, even if we try. God knows the things that wake us up in the morning. God knows the things on your mind and heart that that keep you up at night. God knows the things that you find yourself thinking about all the time. How many of you, if you're a parent, you think about whether or not your kids are gonna be alive today at least a few times a day? Yeah, see, we got things we think about a lot. God knows about that stuff. God knows about the things that we think about that are the dreams, the anticipation, the excitement, the joys, but also the shame and the fear and the angst and the anger. God is aware of all of that going on inside of us. Wherever you are in your mind, you are there, you are here. And so is Jesus. And perhaps when we stop and think about it, we'd all say, well, yeah, I know that. I know God is infinite, God knows. We intellectually agree that God knows those things, but that's not really how we're experiencing God in our thought life. And we're not maybe recognizing it. That's the word I wanna use. What does it look like if we recognize that Jesus is present in our thought life, that God's spirit is present in our thought life? If we recognize this, what difference would it make in our everyday life? I think it would make a huge difference. 
Today I wanna talk about what I think the difference would make for us if we grew in our awareness of the fact that God meets us in our thought life. And so here's kind of my, my, hope, my main point for today. It'll be on the screen. It makes a difference when we recognize Jesus in our thought life. It makes a difference, an important difference, I think. So there's many places that we could see this precedent in scripture that God is aware of our thoughts and cares about what we think about and what we feel and what's going on in our minds and hearts. I think the Psalms are a great example of one of those places in scripture. But today, I wanna look very practically at a story that happened towards the very beginning of Jesus' ministry. Okay, it's gonna be in Mark 2, 1 through 12, if you wanna pull out a Bible, but we'll have it up here on the screen. This is a very practical, there's a few examples like this, but I picked this one today. So imagine with me what it would have been like to be uh, Jesus, people barely know who he is, but enough people know who he is that at this present moment, I'm about to read, there is a whole house, probably like a, a, a large gathering space full of people coming to hear Jesus because he's just, people are just getting word about him. So imagine that you're there as I read this story, okay? Mark 2, starting in verse 1. A few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. They gathered in such large numbers that there was no room left, not even outside the door. And he preached the word to them. Some men came bringing to him a paralyzed man, carried by four of them. Since they could not get him, could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus by digging through it. Um, it was a, mostly probably made of mud. So just imagine this. You're there and you're, you notice a hole is happening in the roof above you. When Jesus saw their faith, okay, so who is Jesus seeing the faith? Probably four friends who are somehow treacherously dropping their friend through the ceiling. And Jesus is like, I see your faith, okay? Because they believed enough that they would bring him, carry him to the roof, take a hole, put him down in there. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, son, your sins are forgiven. I think it's so interesting. It says Jesus saw their faith, not the faith of the paralyzed man. Jesus saw the faith of his friends and their faith was enough for him to say, son, your sins are forgiven. Now, stop here for a second. Note, the man is still paralyzed at this moment, right? Your sins are forgiven. The man is, at whatever this context means, that he couldn't move in some way and he is still in this position. Okay, so that's an important thing to notice. Continue on, verse six. Now some teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, why does this fellow talk like that? Why does Jesus talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Okay, so this is going on in their minds. Some teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves. Okay, so they weren't saying it out loud. They're thinking to themselves. The teachers of the law, their job is to cross every T and dot every I about what the, Old the law that we now find in them, what we call our Old Testament, meant for people that, in that time. So this was a big responsibility for them and it was a lot for them to say, okay, we gotta get this right. That would have been their type of perspective. So they hear Jesus saying things that sound like he thinks he's God, and that's called blasphemy. No, no, so that's what they're, they're reacting to. I don't think that we should blame them for having that reaction. They have never heard anybody claim that they could forgive sins in this way and not be somebody who's guilty of blaspheming God in this way, okay? Now, also, think about this. Someone just told you he can read your mind okay? That's nuts, okay? Some of us in here are like, it'd be really nice if a certain person in my life could read my mind. But that's, and maybe that's why you're vague booking. That's okay. We can talk about it later. But here, 
this, Jesus just tells them he can read their mind. Now, I don't know if, if, he if Jesus would have said this to me and he would have just said, I know, why are you thinking these things? I'd be like, you don't know what I'm thinking. You know, but here he keeps going. And so then I think it proves that he does know what they're thinking. In verse eight, immediately Jesus knew in his spirit that this is what that they were thinking in their hearts. And he said to them, why are you thinking these things? Okay, so this is where they get this question. Why are you thinking these things? The teachers of the law are thinking to themselves. They're not saying out loud. And immediately, Jesus knew in his spirit what they were thinking in their hearts. And he said to them, why are you thinking these things? Then he continues on. Which is easier, to say to this paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take your mat, and walk. But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the man, I tell you, get up and take your mat and go home. He got up, took his mat, and walked out in full view of them all. This amazed everyone, and they praised God, saying, we have never seen anything like this. Okay, let's think about this for a second. So these people are shocked because Jesus has just suggested that he can read their minds, and then he kind of proves that he is able to read their minds. I love that Jesus asks the question, why are you thinking these things in your heart? And in my opinion, I don't think that he's asking in an accusatory way if you know the context, because it would make sense that they'd be thinking these things. I think that the question why, when it comes to what we think about, is a great question. And Jesus is saying, why? Are you kind of proposing to them, why, why, why is this your gut reaction to me? Great question. And then Jesus continues on and does something interesting. He invites them to reframe what they were thinking. He says the phrase, I want you to know. I want you to understand in your mind this new way of thinking. The son of man has the power to forgive sins. I am standing before you, this person. And then, and then even more mind bending, he says, which is easier for me to just say to this man, your sins are forgiven while he's still here sitting and not able to stand up or to actually give him healing to his physical body and he's able to stand up. So he's kind of saying, which is easier for me to heal this man spiritually or physically? And then Jesus is like, surprise, both. <laughs> and then he, he, you know, commands the man to stand up and walk out. You see how he's engaging with the minds of these people? People who valued their minds because of the kind of, of work that they were in, the way, the role that they played in society. He's valuing their minds by saying, why do you think that? How about this? I have another way for you to think about it. I think this is brilliant. I love Jesus. He's so interesting. So, before we go on to why it makes a difference that Jesus can really engage and meet us in our thought life, do you see how this story proves that reality? They weren't like, oh, Jesus seems interesting. I hope that he comes into my mind. Like, that's not at all what they were saying. Jesus meets them in that, and he brings up what they were thinking. And then before we move on, there's something really important I want to say, because we talk about this a lot at Mill City, and so if you're newer with us, this is a core foundational understanding for us that we need to keep in the front of of our minds and hearts when we're talking about this. And that is this idea that we see scripture engaging us as humans in a holistic way, okay? God cares about our emotions. God cares about our thoughts. God cares about our actions, about our bodies. God cares about our soul, our relationships. Um, put the, the soul wheel up here. How many of you have seen the soul wheel? It's a little hard to read all of the words, I'll tell you in a second. So uh, this was our friend, good friend of Mill City, Dr. Christine Osgood came up with this for Bethel University's well-being initiative. And all this is saying, it's relatively simple, is that for people to be holistically experiencing well-being, we can't just cherry pick parts of our life. 
We have to pay attention to the emotional, the spiritual, the cognitive, the relational, the meaning parts of our life, and the physical part of our life. See how each of the parts flows into the next one? They cannot be separated. They are different parts of us, but they're not able to be separated. They're integrated. So that's a foundational thing for us here at Mill City is that we see ourselves as integrated people because that's what scripture suggests God sees us as, integrated people. And so as we are looking at, at scripture, we see that it's intentional, including the words of Jesus, including the words of Paul later in the New Testament, that our minds, our souls, our hearts, our bodies are being addressed by what's being said. They're not to be seen as the same thing, but as things that can't be separated, things that impact each other. Jesus knows that the posture these people have towards them in their thoughts, so the posture that those, the reaction that came up in those folks, he knows that their posture, mentally and emotionally, is going to affect their whole being. It's gonna affect their soul, it's gonna affect even their bodies. Okay, I hope you'll see that as we go on today. So in this instance, Jesus says he knew what they were thinking in their hearts. And the word there in Greek is actually heart, meaning the, the heart. So it's, uh, it's cardia, where we get the word cardio in heart, heart. So he's talking about the physical part of the body that people knew at that time as the heart, just like we do today. The place where your blood is pumped through your body. At that time, it's also where people believed that your thinking and emotional processes and everything was centered. So maybe the best way to look at it is the center of all spiritual and physical life. So we would say, okay, well, the center of our physical life might be our heart pumping the blood, but um, we now know more about our brains and what our brains are doing and that our thought process is, that wasn't the understanding at the time. Jesus is specifically saying the center of yourself. Think of it that way. I know what you are thinking in the center of who you are, in the, in the center of, of your heart, mind, whatever you want to look at it that way. He would have been talking about that part of your life. Jesus was not trying to separate thoughts and feelings because that's not something that he would have tried to do. He was trying to say that, uh, that there is a thought or a feeling that you're having a reaction, right? So it's important for us today that we don't feel like the need to separate our thoughts from our feelings, and here's why. In this time of Jesus, and then also Paul, there was a lot of other worldviews they were coming up against. Sound familiar? Okay, so there's a lot of other worldviews that they're coming up against about a lot of different things in life, and a couple important ones here uh, for us to understand the context is that, first of all, there was a group called the Stoics. There's a lot about their philosophies that would be interesting, but the important thing here is that they elevated thoughts and reasoning over emotions, as though uh, these are more important, almost like that they could be more separated than is probably possible for us to do, but that was a dominant thinking of the day. And so both Jesus and Paul respond to those folks, even though you don't always see that's what they're doing. Another very important uh, philosophy that impacted a lot of people at that time was a form of dualism where it was this idea that your mind, your spirit, your, your soul, your emotions are separate from your body in a way that what your body does doesn't necessarily affect your mind and heart and what your mind and heart does doesn't affect your body. It's called dualism, do you see that? Like splitting you into two. And the well-being wheel would suggest you can't split someone right down the middle. And this idea that what happens to your body doesn't matter for this other aspect of your life led to a lot of really destructive choices, didn't it? And that didn't end in the first century. This dualism cycles through history in so many ways, and I think we see a lot of it here today even, and a lot of experiences a lot of us have. And I would say I'm one that sometimes thinks that's true, that all oh, this, this doesn't impact this. But I wanna suggest that it does. And so these are the philosophies that were confronting Jesus at this time and, and confronting Paul later on in the New Testament. 
And so in the New Testament, it talks about these things being inseparable in a lot of different ways, and we won't get into all of them. But I wanna bring up what uh, the theologian N.T. Wright says. I love what he talks about. He says that the aspects of humanity are integrated and not separable, and that God is speaking to who we are as human beings from different angles. God is speaking to us as human beings from different angles that contributes to the whole. And look at this quote that he says. Each and every aspect of the human being is addressed by God, is claimed by God, is loved by God, and can respond to God. I love that. Each and every aspect of the human being is addressed by God, claimed by God, loved by God, and can respond to God. So if N.T. Wright is right, if N.T. Wright is correct, then what does it mean for us to respond to God in our thought life? What is God doing and how do we respond in this aspect of who we are? It's not all of who we are, but it's an important part of who we are. Here's what I think the difference is that Jesus makes in our life when it comes to this. If we recognize Jesus in our thought life, it's then that we are able to respond. If we are able to recognize that God is present in our thought life, then we're gonna be able to respond. And I think it looks like this. I'll just walk through some kind of steps. The first thing I think we're able to do is we can ask why and not be afraid of the answer. Why am I thinking about that? Why is this coming up in my mind and heart? Why do I wake up thinking about this? Why is this keeping me up at night? Why do I find myself thinking about this certain thing so often? Why do I feel feelings of joy or sorrow when I have this memory or this thought? Why do I keep feeling tempted to vague book? Okay, <laughs> right. What, what is the question? Why? It's so profound. And when Jesus is present with us, we don't have to be afraid of the answer. We don't have to be afraid of the answer. I was, I was meeting with my therapist this last week and she said something brilliant. She said, we should be curious about our thoughts and feelings rather than judgmental. How about that? That was worth the money. We should be curious about our thoughts and our feelings and not be judgmental. And she kept going. She said, because curiosity will give us so much more psychological flexibility to grow than judgment and shame will do. And we've seen that point, that figured out in so many ways in our understanding of psychology. Judgment, shame holds us back from growth. It holds us back from psychological flexibility to answer the question why. And that brings me to the second difference that Jesus makes. We don't have to live in shame. I don't know about you, but man, when I think about the idea that God is present in every one of my thoughts, gut reaction is shame. Oh boy. So that means God knows I thought, whoop. I'm not gonna ask you to raise your hand. I just know I'm not the only one that experiences that instant feeling. But we gotta go here, you guys. It's true. There's no thought that you have that can make God love you more. There's no amount of things that you can dwell on that's gonna make God approve of you more as a being that God created in his image and who he loves. There is nothing that you can think about that will make God love you less. And I think we're sitting here going like we know that, but do we know that? Like Jesus would say at the core of who you are. That the love, the unconditional love of God as exemplified through the cross can come into our life and say you can be set free from that shame. Because apparently, according to my very expensive psychologist, you can't be set free from that if you have shame, you can't grow. You can't take these steps forward. It doesn't let us off the hook for growth, but it sets us free from shame, the love that God has for us. Okay, so then third, if we can begin to be set free from shame, lifelong process, totally, okay. We can start to respond to God 
and reframe our thoughts. Now, reframing our thoughts is not an easy thing to do, but we have to be free from that shame to begin to do that well. Remember Jesus, he offers a new way of thinking, doesn't he? He's like, I want you to think about me this way. He's inviting them to reframe what they were thinking about prior. I think God's inviting us to reframe what we're thinking often. And it turns out, when we think about things differently, it changes what happens holistically, right? But in psychology, they've thought about this for years, so now we must know that if something's been thought about for that long, it's gotta be more nuanced than one or the other. That's a, that's a bonus tip, okay? For fighting about it for that long, we probably need some more nuance. Okay, so if, if, do your actions change your mind and your thoughts, or do your thoughts change your actions? It's both, okay? Because we are holistic beings that can't be separated. And so Jesus is inviting a frame of mind change that can affect the way you live, but there's also ways that you can begin to live that change the way that you think. Jesus offers this new way of thinking. Let me give you an example of a, a story of a reframe in my life. So just in the last five or six years, this is the biggest reframe in my mind and my heart, my emotions, that I've had in the last five or six years. So I started going to a therapist about seven years ago, different one than I have now. And I came in because I knew that I needed to confront some of the feelings I was having about having lost my dad when I was 17 years old. I was like, something needs to be processed about the fact that I lived with someone who knew he was dying from the time I was seven to 17. That seems worth it to make that phone call, don't you think? So I called and I said, I wanna talk about this. Turns out there was a very clear message that I was thinking. And it was, because of my upbringing and experience, no one's fault, you have to be strong and you have to figure it out yourself because there's really hard things going on. You can't ask for help in certain ways. Be strong, buck up, you can do it on your own. Now, there were times when I didn't think that all the time, but it had become a really dominant script in my mind. Can you see how I would come to that conclusion? And so through some long conversations, I would say it was probably like a year and a half of conversations, I got to a spot where I needed to switch into a new reframe, but it took a process. And the new frame of thinking was really important. It was that I am able to trust other people. I can trust God. I can ask for help. It's okay to need help. It's okay to feel weak. You're doing the best that you can. And I did not believe that I was ever doing the best that I could. I remember reading the book Rising Strong by Brene Brown. Has anybody read it? Have you read a book or heard something that when you heard it, Brene Brown says this too, when you heard it, it was so like formative in your life and so much change happened that it's like there was before you heard that and then after you heard that in your life. This statement that Brene Brown said in that book was my like, at that point, things started to change. In the book, she said, do you believe that people are doing the best they can with what they have? And when she read it to me in her audiobook, I said, no, I'm not doing the best I can with what I have and neither is anyone else. <laughs> of course, that's what Brene Brown's reaction was to and she talks through how if we can get to a place where we realize that we're doing the best we can with what we have, it's there that we can begin to grow because guess what? New information about giving ourselves compassion is actually now something new that we have to move forward. And then we can have a different reaction to ourselves. And so I came to the spot where I was like, okay, if I can have compassion on myself, then maybe I can have compassion on other people. Turns out it doesn't work the other way around. You're getting to hear that for free, but I paid for that from my counselor. So you have to start with compassion for yourself if you wanna move to being able to have compassion for other people. After a few couple years, you guys, let me tell you, my knee-jerk reaction, my mind frame reaction, that my frame of mind, is still, 
I can do this on my own, I'm strong enough. But really quickly, I say, wait a second. You're doing the best you can with what you have. You're gonna need to invite other people into this. And I'm telling you, it was not that quick of a thing before. That reframe is changing me. And then I have this knee-jerk reaction. Why is that person doing that? What's the matter with them? Okay, and then really quickly, well, maybe they're doing the best they can with what they have. I wonder if me or others offered support, that would be more that they now have, and so there's something new that could be an outcome in their life. You see how radically different that reframe is? Just changed the way that I was thinking. It took time, it took intentionality, but what was happening to me when that was happening? Some of you know, I know some of you have studied the brain. My brain was rewiring itself. I think that's so amazing. Like my brain was literally rewiring. I love that uh, Dr. Christine Osgood, she talks about how some of these patterns of thinking that we have, it's like a superhighway. Some of you know the superhighway thinking that you have. That was my superhighway. I can do it, I'm strong enough, right? I had to decide to have a new superhighway, but that started with a path that I had to intentionally walk down and beat away the bushes to develop a new path and a new way of thinking. I think this is the reframe that's happening. And that brings us to difference number four. Our minds and brains can actually be transformed. I believe that that's true. In Romans 12, one and two, some of you know this letter from the Apostle Paul. He talks about being transformed by the renewing of our minds. If we offer our bodies as a living sacrifice, he's not saying our physical body. If you offer our, your whole self, then God will help you to, to change the, your mind. We don't conform to patterns of thinking, right? What was my old pattern? You have to be strong. But change, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. He didn't even know it was actually your brain changed. He just thought, you know what I mean? He didn't know about brain chemistry like we do. It's fascinating. You are changed. When you make that choice, your actual physical self starts to change. Which brings us to number five, which is we actually are holistically transformed, mind, soul, body. Whenever one part of us changes, there is a, there's a chain reaction because we are integrated beings. Soon I'm just gonna be like, because we are integrated beings, right, together. They're not to be separated. I love that we can begin to see that our emotional and physical and mental, all of that together, our spiritual life is integrated. And then we can see why it's so important that we don't do that dualistic thing and say, it's fine that I'm going down the superhighway of shame. It's fine that I'm taking like the fast lane to fear and absolute like, you know, worth, feeling worthless, whatever it is, or pride or whatever. If we can recognize that that's gonna impact the rest of us, I think that it matters. So here's, the questions that I want you to think about. Have them up here on the screen. You might have just one that sticks out to you. What thoughts could you be curious about and ask why about in your life right now? Maybe that's something that sticks out to you. What shame or fear do you need to ask Jesus to cover? What place in your life do you need to ask Jesus to do that? I think we're invited to ask for that. What reframe might God be inviting you to consider? Like the example that I gave you in my own life. And then what holistic well-being might this growth bring in your life? You know why number four is important? Because on the hard days, we need some motivation. <laughs> and the idea that we're gonna be holistically healthier people, I think, is an amazing thing. So for a lot of us, I think these steps feel doable. If you're feeling like, listen, things are really chaotic in my mind right now, that's when I'm gonna say, we have a great list of therapists and counselors. It's Mental Health Awareness Month. Make the call. Maybe you only go a couple times. Doesn't matter. Go to millcitychurch.com slash care. Great list. Let us know if you need help with that. There is no reason to hold back from that. 
But let me give you one final tool when it comes to our thought life that you can take with you today, no matter where you're at. And I think that's the concept of the practice of breath prayers. Maybe some of you have done breath prayers in your life. So I just have a few examples. For instance, the breath prayer, put those up there on the screen. The first one would be the prayer, Lord have mercy. Struggling with shame? Maybe you just need to say over and over, Lord have mercy, Lord have mercy, Lord have mercy. Maybe discernment and questions are really getting at you. How about speak, Lord, I am listening. And you have to repeat it because our minds are so easily going down all those super highways. How about when you see something that's wrong that needs to be made right in your life or the world, just praying, bring your kingdom, bring your kingdom. The kingdom of God makes wrong things right, bring your kingdom. And then the catch-all for all the crazy things that go on in our brains, come Lord Jesus, all right? That's one that we can repeat. I wanna finish by giving you a, a, a really an example of a centering prayer, breath prayer, and then uh, Ryan's gonna put it on the screen for you so that you can actually follow it, okay? So do you see how it's the phrase, be still and know that I am God, but you start with just one part of it and you build and you build and you build and you go back down. Some of you have done this before. It's just gonna take one minute, underline each part, just in your mind, in your heart. You don't have to say it out loud. Just pray that phrase, okay? Just as a way to practice this. Go ahead, we'll just take one minute to do that. I want you to know that when you intentionally enter a practice like that, you are changing. Your mind, your heart, your body, holistically changing. Come on up, the band's gonna come on up. We're gonna take communion. You guys, man, there were so many physical weariness I was experiencing in that old frame of mind. Guess what? I got a bunch of energy back when that changed. Your whole life is impacted by what we think about. I have a, a little sheets that are gonna be on these chairs for you with this prayer on it that you can take with you today if that's helpful. Maybe take it to a quiet spot and try it this week. I wanna invite you to celebrate communion with us like we do every week. We just form two lines here. You come up, there'll be people to serve it for you. You take some of the gluten-free bread, dip it into the cup, and then you can go out, you can grab a piece of paper if you want, and there'll be people here to pray for you. We'd love to pray for you. But really what we're doing here is coming up and Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me. Jesus is saying, I want you in your mind in your heart to remember, I love that. And the invitation is to come and to say to Jesus, I remember. I'm intentionally turning my mind towards you. That's all we're saying. 
in this way. If you're a follower of Jesus, you're welcome to partake. If you're trying to seek Jesus in your life, come and let this be an experience for you of grace and love and that ability to leave that shame behind, even if it's just for a day. We invite you to come when you're ready.